everyone. Thanks for joining us. My name is Danae Friesen, and I am the youth pastor at the Mission Campus. My name is Luke Friesen, and I am the high school pastor at the Downs Road Campus and married to Danae. June is a season of graduation, which is why we're here, because we want to celebrate the high school grads of 2020. Now, we know this year has ended pretty weird and not like any of us would have expected, but we are so excited and proud of these grade 12 students who have completed their high school career. And now uh, to celebrate them, we actually have a deep-rooted Mennonite tradition of how to celebrate a graduate well. And so what you do is if you have a graduate with you, you get them to stand on up. And then you, as a body believer, surround them, put your hands in your pockets, pull out your wallet and say, Congratulations on gradding. Here's my money. Is that, is that real? No, but it could be a thing. Amazing. Uh, but seriously, as a church family, we want to celebrate this transition of these teenagers into adulthood, and we want to pray for their future of life and ministry ahead. So why don't you join us in congratulating the grad class of 2020. But these high school students aren't the only ones that we want to celebrate. We also want to celebrate the graduation of our age four preschoolers. Because that's the same. Every year we give these little ones a brand new Bible and we pray that they will continue to fall in love with God's word. And here are some of our preschool graduates. Aren't they cute? <laughs> and if you have little ones running around right now, we want to remind you that our children's ministry team has put together a kids service video that you can find on our website. And we also got some very exciting news that we will be actually opening our Downs Road and our Mission campuses to live services. Mind you, they're going to look a bit differently with our 50-person limit. We've been working with our city officials to manage our health and safety regulations. And because of the limitations, you must register online ahead of time to the service and venue of your choice. Registrations will be opened on Monday at 7 p.m. on our Northview website. Next weekend is our first live services, so that means June 29th is when registration will be opened. We know that we won't be able to accommodate everyone at our on-site services. So if you're already connected to a community group or you've been having watch parties and having church together, we want to encourage you to continue to do that. So don't worry, we will still be producing our online services. And now we have Nate and Stephanie who are going to lead us in worship, so please join us. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful am I so?
you 
Now we're going to hear from our newest campus pastor, Joshua Scott. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Esther chapter 7. Do you remember the story of Romeo and Juliet? It's a fascinating story that somehow has captivated generations. It's become a classic. Uh, it's filled with love and romance and sacrifice. But it's got a bit of a sad ending. Um, Romeo and Juliet die. Uh, and that's not a spoiler. It's, it's about 400 years old. So I, I hope you know that. Back in Shakespeare's day, there, there were generally two ways to write a play. Uh, the, the first way was uh, what's called a tragedy. And that would be Romeo and Juliet. Essentially, a tragedy meant that it would have a sad ending. And the opposite of a tragedy is what was called a comedy. And a comedy, not in the sense that, that we use the word today of a movie that's just trying to make you laugh, maybe it's goofy or silly, uh, but a comedy simply meant that it would have a happy ending. So a tragedy had a sad ending and a comedy had a happy ending. What's interesting is when you look at the best tragedies, the best stories that are tragedies, usually there's a bit of a comedy wrapped up on the inside of it. So if you looked at Romeo and Juliet, yes, Romeo uh, and Juliet die, but after they die, their parents come together and seeing the love that their kids had for one another, um, they decide to make peace. And so they end this, this years-long feud between their families, the Capulets and the Montagues. There's a bit of a, bit of a comedy uh, in the midst of a tragedy. And the same is true of, of really good comedies. Often, they have a bit of a tragedy inside. And that's what we have in the book of Esther. The comedy is, is this, that, that Esther, Mordecai, the Jews, they're going to win. Um, things are going to turn out really well for them. In fact, it's going to turn out a little bit better than they probably would have hoped or imagined it could. So it's, it's got a happy ending. But, but in the middle of this comedy, there's a tragedy. And, and it's that tragedy that we want to look at today. It's the tragedy of Haman. Now, you, you, you might wonder, well, Haman's the bad guy. How can it be a tragedy if it's the bad guy? Well, no matter who it is, when you see somebody so twisted by their desire for something that we know if they even got it, it would not satisfy them. And when, when that desire forces them into a catastrophe, no matter who you are, it's sad. And so this, this is the tragedy of Haman. So we're in Esther chapter 7, but let me, let me catch you up to where we are as, as we start chapter 7. Um, at this point in the story, there is a royal edict out in all of Persia saying that on the 12th month and the 13th day, all of the Jewish people are free game. All of their neighbors can go and kill them and loot their homes. And the reason that this, this edict is out is because Haman has kind of duped the king into making it happen. He, he told the king there's, there's a people, they have different customs. Um, they're really no good. Would, would you mind if I just get rid of them? And the king says, don't, don't bother me. Yes, go take my ring, make it happen. And the reason Haman is doing this is because Haman has a bit of an ego problem. He, he thirsts for recognition. He, he cannot stand not being praised for, for who he is and what he's become. He's the second in command in all of Persia next to the king. And there is one Jew, Mordecai, who just will not honor him. And it eats Haman up inside that it, 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 he can't deal with it, that, that Mordecai will not honor him. And so to deal with this one Jew, he comes up with this big plan, I'm gonna deal with all the Jews. But Mordecai hears about this edict 
And Mordecai sits outside the king's gate and he begins to, to wail and mourn. He's put on sackcloth and ashes. And the, the queen, Esther, who happens to be Mordecai's cousin and, and Mordecai was a bit of a father figure to her, the queen notices and sends word and says, Mordecai, what's wrong? And, and Mordecai shares with her about the edict and asks, Esther, would, would you go before the king and, and ask on our behalf that, that maybe this can be changed? Now, this is a bit, a bit of a big ask because uh, the queen, or, or in fact anybody, isn't allowed to come before the king uninvited. And so it, it, it would be a risk to her own life to walk in. But, but, you know, after a bit of back and forth, she decides to do it. And she says, if, if I perish, I perish. So she goes before the king and the king has favor on her. He extends the gold, his gold scepter. She comes forward and, and touches it, essentially to, to mean that, that uh, she was welcome. And the king asks her, what is your desire? Up to half of my kingdom and, and it'll be yours. And she says, well, um, how about you and Haman come to a banquet that I've prepared tonight? Uh, and so they go to this banquet and you imagine Haman's probably on the top of the world, right? Um, he's been invited to dine with royalty. Uh, he, he's the only one dining with the king and the queen. That, that says something, doesn't it? So he leaves that banquet uh, and he walks out the king's gate and lo and behold, who's there? but Mordecai, and uh, Mordecai's not honoring him, and Haman is filled with absolute rage. He goes home after a wonderful evening of a banquet with the king and the queen. He goes home, and he is, he is distraught, and he is angry. And he comes to his wife, and he's talking to his advisors. He comes up with a plan. He's going to go to the king the next morning, uh, and he is going to ask if Mordecai can be impaled on this massive pole that he's going to set up in his backyard. So all night, they're building this pole in his backyard, but little did Haman know that all night the king's not sleeping because he can't for some reason. He asks that the, the book of the chronicles of his reign be brought before him and be read to him, and they stumble upon a, a portion in their history where Mordecai, this Jew who won't honor Haman, this Mordecai actually saved the king's life at one point. He, he found out about a conspiracy and he made it known and, and he saved the king's life. Um, the king asks, well, what do, we, what do we do to honor him? And they say, well, nothing. So uh, lo and behold, who's, who's in the courts at that time? Haman, who has come to ask the king if he can impale Mordecai on his pole. And the king asks Haman, what, what should be done for the one that I desire to honor? And Haman thinks, well, being the bee's knees, of course, he wants to honor me, Right? And so he says, well, let, let the royal horse be brought and, and let this man be put on the royal horse with a royal robe and let one of the king's highest princes lead him through the city um, and declare this is what the king does for the one whom he pleases to honor, whom he delights to honor. And Haman's thinking, this is great. This is going to be a great day. Uh, and the king says, oh, that's, I love the idea. Um, go and, and do so with Mordecai. The Jew, don't forget anything you just said. Do it all. And Haman goes and he grabs Mordecai, puts him on the royal horse, puts the royal robe on his back and, and leads him through the city saying, this is what the king does for the one whom he delights to honor. And Mordecai goes home at the end of the day, utterly humiliated. He has his tail between his legs. He comes home to his wife, to his advisors, and his wife isn't, isn't a particular... Um, isn't particularly an optimist. So she says to him, um, if Mordecai is of the Jewish nation, um, yeah, this, you're hooped. This isn't going to work out for you. And 
chapter six ends with the eunuchs from the king coming to gather Haman to bring him to banquet number two. And that is where we pick up Esther chapter seven. This, this is the tragedy of Haman. So Esther chapter seven, here's, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna walk through the text and I'll make a few comments as we go. And then I wanna make three points. I wanna make a point uh, from, from the life of Haman, something for us to learn, an application. And then I wanna make a point from Queen Esther, um, how she operates in this story. And then I, I wanna back up and look at the story uh, as a whole and make one kind of broader point about it all. Okay, so we'll start reading through the text and, and then we'll make a few uh, applications from it, okay? So let's start with Esther uh, chapter seven, verse one. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Now, I, I want to point out two things to you here. So we're told in verse two that, that they were drinking wine. Now, generally how a banquet uh, worked back in these days, what they, would, they would have two parts to a banquet. The first part was, was all the dining. They would sit back and they would just enjoy the feast. And that could, take, that could take a couple of hours. You're just eating through the food, you do it slowly. Part two was the drinking of wine. It was, it was the banquet of wine. And so they would sit back, they would recline, and they would drink their wine. And usually, it's at this point that they would settle into the more important pieces of the conversation. But, but uh, what's important about that is that Esther has been sitting with, with the king and with Haman probably for a couple of hours already enjoying whatever small talk they've had. But, but I want you to imagine how she's feeling through this whole meal. She, she is about to ask the king for something uh, pretty dramatic. And she's probably sitting there. I can imagine she's a little quiet uh, during supper. She's probably mulling over uh, what she's gonna say. But also just, just imagine how she's feeling on the inside. Have you ever sat down with somebody um, and intended to have an have a important conversation with them, right? You sit down and uh, you have all the small talk, right? Which is just the polite thing to do. Say, how are you doing? Um, how's your family? Um, how's work? But the whole time you, you're getting a little more and more and more tense. And then finally you say, um, there's something I wanna talk to you about. And, and you, can you imagine the feeling in your throat? It gets tight and your heart starts to, to beat faster. I can imagine this is how Esther's feeling the whole time. She's just waiting for the king to ask her, and she's probably thinking through exactly how she's gonna respond. That's how she's feeling. The second thing I wanna point out is that this is the third time that the king has asked Queen Esther what she desires. So the first time was when she came before him in his hall, unannounced and uninvited, right? She was risking her life, but the king has favor on her and asks her, what do you desire? Up to, up to half my kingdom, you can have it. And she says, well, come to a banquet. The second time is, is at the first banquet. And again, he asks her, what, what do you desire? And she responds by saying, well, if you really mean it, if you really want to give me what I'm asking for and meet my request, then, then come to a banquet tomorrow night again. And this is that second banquet. This is the third time that the king is asking Queen Esther what she desires. Um, now, I don't know if you felt this before, but, but if you ask someone the same question uh, over and over and over again and they still won't give you an answer, sometimes it gets a little annoying, um, right? I, um, for those of you uh, married couples, maybe you've, maybe you've felt this. Uh, when you sit down, you say, hey, hey, sweetie, um, where would you like to go for supper? 
And the response is, um, I, you know, I don't know. Okay. Um, are you feeling anything in particular? No, not, not really. Well, um, well, how about this place? No, I'm not really feeling that. There, there gets a point where you ask a question so many times, um, you kind of don't want to ask it anymore, right? If, if Queen Esther had said at this point, um, you know, come back, come back to the next banquet tomorrow. Let's do this again. Probably the king would, would get a little frustrated. But she doesn't do that. The third time's the charm. He asks her and she responds. Verse three. Then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition and, and spare my people. This is my request for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had been merely sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. So she finally breaks the silence. She finally tells the king what's on her mind, what she, what she requests. But I want you to notice how choice she is with her words, right? You can almost imagine her saying this very slowly. If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. The king is probably expecting something, something uh, very different than that request. He's probably expecting, um, can I get a few more servants for my side of the palace? Can we go on a wonderful vacation? We'll sit and, and uh, hang out on a beach together. No, no, uh, she asks that he would spare her life. And, he, and she honors him the whole way through. But what's also interesting is that she makes a bit of a financial argument for why she's bringing it up. In verse four, she, she says, if, if I and my people um, had been sold merely as female and male slaves, I, I wouldn't have brought it up. It wouldn't have been as big of a deal because it wouldn't have cost you as much. Essentially, she's saying, we, we've been sold to be killed, all of the Jewish people, all of my people. But if we'd been sold to be slaves, it wouldn't have cost you as much. Now, if we die, we're not gonna, we're not gonna give you anything. And Jews were, were known to be fairly industrious people back in that day. Um, if you kill them, they're, they're not gonna do anything. If we'd been sold as slaves, at least you, we'd be worth something. But now, uh, we're not gonna be worth anything to you. It's interesting, she makes a bit of a financial argument for, for why uh, the king should spare her and her people. And so the king, the king responds to her request. Verse five, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. So finally, um, Haman realizes why he's been invited to this banquet. And you probably can imagine uh, that he's been sinking in his seat a little bit as she says, me and my people, we've been, we've been sold to be killed, destroyed, and annihilated. Those are the same words that show up in the edict that Haman made about the Jewish people. So he might be putting two and two together and realizing, oh boy, I might be in trouble. And, and when Esther finally uh, turns to point the finger, he realizes he is in trouble. And the king gets up in a rage. And we're told that, that he gets up and he leaves his wine and he goes into the palace garden. Now, uh, we, we might think that he's just, he's just angry and he needs to blow off some steam. 
But actually, um, in that day, it was a bit of a symbolic thing for the king to leave the room when somebody was found guilty. Essentially, it was the king saying, I won't even hear your plea. There is nothing you can say to me that will change my mind. I have already decided what's going to happen to you. I'm not even going to hear you out. So when the king leaves, Haman, Haman gets the hint. He's finished. And so Haman does, does the only thing he has left to do. He, he begs Queen Esther, right? Hoping that maybe, maybe uh, she can change his mind. Maybe she could rescue him. But uh, things go from bad to worst for Haman. Verse 8, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, a pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits, that's about 75 feet, stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. So the king is coming back from the garden, and just as he walks back into the room, um, Haman falls before Queen Esther. Now, now, no matter who you are, this is kind of inappropriate conduct um, with royalty. You, you would never do this with a king or a queen, but, but this is Haman's last chance. He's making a last-ditch effort for his own life. And so he falls before the queen. Maybe, maybe he's grabbed on her, onto her ankles or, or taken her hand or something. He is pleading with her for his life. But the king walks in and he is angry. And when you're angry, sometimes you see things that, that really aren't, aren't there. And so he, he says, will he even assault the queen after what he has just done? Well, um, the moment that the words come out of the king's mouth, they cover Haman's face. Another, another symbolic way of saying uh, he's finished. It's over for Haman. Um, and lo and behold, uh, th there's a eunuch standing by who has been, uh, you know, conspicuously quiet the whole time. But, but seeing that Haman is already hooped, he speaks up, right? Apparently, Haman didn't have a lot of friends in the palace because um, nobody defends him here. And Harbona, this eunuch, who, who presumably had gone to uh, pick up Haman and bring him to the palace for this banquet, he, he says, well, um, there's actually a pole that's been set up in his backyard. It's about 75 feet tall. And he, he, guess, who, guess who he set it up for? Uh, the person who saved your life, Mordecai. And so the king says, impale him on it. And the final dramatic irony of Haman's life is that the pole that he had set up to impale Mordecai is the very pole that he himself is impaled on. And thus ends the tragedy of Haman. So what I want to do is I, I want to look at, at Haman for a moment, and, and I want to make a, a point for us to work with, a, a point of application, because we, we don't want to pass by uh, what we've seen in his life and in his story. And the point I want to make is this. Deal with your sin. When you, when you look at Haman, the root of his problem isn't actually um, that he wants all the Jews put to death. That's not the root of his problem. And the root of his problem isn't that he's so angry at Mordecai that he wants to have him impaled on a pole in his backyard. Yet, it's certainly terrible, but it's not the root of his problem. The root of Haman's problem is that he desires above everything else to be recognized. 
He wants to be praised. He wants to be honored. He hungers and thirsts with an insatiable desire to be honored. And so when this one man, Mordecai, won't honor him, he, he makes a foolishly extravagant decision. He says, you know what? If I'm going to deal with one man, I'm going to deal with all of them. Let's put all the Jews to death. You, you, you can't imagine that, that if, if he had sat back and thought about it, that that would be in any way a smart decision to deal with the problem. You, you want to be recognized? There's one man who won't honor you and all these others will honor you? But you want to have them all killed? The root of Haman's problem is that he desires above everything else to be recognized. He desires fame. I had a friend um, in high school. It was a long, 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 long time ago. I had a friend in high school um, who was known for being a bit of a player. Um, he would, he would uh, date a girl, and a few months later, he would break up with her. And um, then he would date another girl, and a few months later, he'd break up with her. And I just wondered, how, how do they not get the hint? I mean, if he's, he's dating a girl and he breaks up with her in a couple months, you'd think that if I were a girl, I'd, I'd say, well, I don't want to date him. But they kept on doing it because he was a smooth talker, right? He, he, was, the, he, was, the, um, he was the swoony kind of guy. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, but I went back to visit Jasper uh, a couple years ago, and I actually met up with this friend, and I found out that, that he had broken one too many hearts. Uh, he had been with a girl, and um, he made a pretty foolish decision. Um, and it actually cost him his reputation, finally, so much so that nobody wanted to be with him anymore. I mean, um, it, it cost him his reputation because he couldn't deal with it. He had, he had this desire to get whatever he wanted out of a relationship. It, it didn't matter what he gave into it, he just wanted what he wanted out of it. And it cost him. The reality is that, that all of us, even, even having put our faith in Jesus Christ, and knowing that, that Christ has paid the final debt of our sin on the cross, that, that what we owe to God is actually eternal damnation. That's, that's the wage of our sin. That's what it should cost us to be sinful people. But Christ paid it on the cross. And despite the fact that, that we put our faith in him and we trust him and we know that our eternity is secure, we still struggle with sin, right? This, this is Romans 7. Paul says, what I do, I don't want to do. And what I don't want to do, I do. I find it to be a, a rule that when I desire to do good, sin is close at hand. We still struggle with sinful desires. And those sinful desires, if left unchecked, will lead to foolish decisions. And the desire can be all sorts of things, right? For Haman, it was fame. But it, it could be power. It, it could be finance. It could be money. It could be uh, getting whatever you want out of a relationship. It could be being satisfied in some way, gratified. It could be any number of these things. And even as Christians, we will struggle with these desires. This is, this is, the, this is the struggle of being in a sinful world and waiting for the final hope of Christ to come back and take us home to be with him where there will be no sin in his presence. And if we don't deal with these sins, we're going to end up like Haman. Maybe not, maybe not to the same extreme, but, but it's going to drive us. It's going to force us to make decisions that we really don't want to make. And the root of it is a desire for something that, that actually will never satisfy us. Because mankind, humanity was made to desire the very thing that could satisfy us. God himself. 
So when you look in the Garden of Eden, actually, the, the, the sin that was the fall of man wasn't necessarily that, that they just disobeyed God. Yes, certainly that was sinful. But when you look at the text, it's actually that Eve looked at the fruit and saw that it was desirable to make one wise. Eve, Eve's desire moved away from that which actually could satisfy her, God, and moved to what she thought the fruit of the tree could offer her. And so her, her desire was bent away from God himself. And, that, and that's what we struggle with. Our desire is bent away from God toward things of this world that will never satisfy us. So, so what we need to learn from the life of Haman is we need to deal with our sin. We need to deal with these desires that, that kind of just seethe inside of us. Um, and it's the desire, not necessarily the action, that we need to deal with. This is the point that James makes in James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. He says, Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The point that he's making is that sin, the actions of our sin, right? The disobedience, the wrongdoing actually finds its root in our desires. And so this is what we need to do. We need to identify the desires that are inside of us that, that we know are not, are not right. And then we need to call them out and then we need to deal with them. This is why in the New Testament, you, you have the, the, the apostles telling us to put to death, therefore, the desires of the flesh and put off the old self and put on the new self, right? Um, because we need to deal with our desires or else they will drive us to make decisions that we will regret. But James, James makes the, the point here at the, end of, at the end of that verse to say that, that sin, when it is fully grown, it, it gives birth to death. And, and I do want to make a special note for you. If you're watching and, and you haven't put your faith in Christ, you, you need to know that the, the cost of your sin, the cost of desiring something other than God and, and saying that my life is about what I want and not about what God wants and who he is, the cost of that is your life. And not just your life here, but, but your life for eternity. And so what Christ has done, Jesus, the very Son of God, is he has come to pay the debt, that debt, on the cross. He suffered an eternity's worth of suffering so that you wouldn't have to. And if you, and if you turn away from those, those desires of the world and you turn away and say, God, help me desire you. Forgive me for these things. Help me desire you. I want to I know you. Then he is faithful and he is just to forgive you your sins. You need to know that. But, but more than offering you an eternity in heaven, he offers you his very self. A relationship with God that can satisfy. I want you to hear that. So, so this is the point that we, that we want to learn from the, the tragedy of Haman. De deal with your sin. Don't wait until it's too late to deal with your sin. If you do, it'll cost you. Second point, I want to change gears significantly. I want to look at Esther for a moment. Um, the, point, the point I want to make is this. Don't be afraid to take risks. Don't be afraid to take risks. If you look at what Esther is doing here, um, she's, she's taking a pretty big risk by asking for what she's asking for two reasons. First, she's going to expose herself as a Jew, and the king had no idea she was a Jew. So, so you can imagine if, uh, if uh, this husband is finding something brand new about his wife, and this husband has kind of been prone to, you know, rash decisions. Maybe, just maybe, he's not going to take that very well. 
The second thing is that, that she's gonna call out his second in command, the very one that, that the king leans on the most for advice, for wisdom in deciding what to do. So it's a bit risky, but, but she's already taken a risk, right? She, she's already gone into the throne room. She risked her life by coming before the king uninvited. But the, but the point I wanna make is this, is, is don't be afraid to take risks. Why is it that, that we should not worry about all the risk that there is in the world? Because if, if we have been learning what the book of Esther has been teaching us, um, then, then we shouldn't be afraid about anything that's gonna come our way. Right? The, the whole book of Esther teaches us that God's providence, his sovereignty, works through, uh, through all areas of our lives in, in gentle and quiet ways. Sometimes you, you don't even notice that he's doing it. Most of the time, actually, you don't even notice he's doing it. And so if God is kind of orchestrating things in the background, his providence is working things out for the good of his people, then Esther coming before the king, actually, as risky as it is, it's not really that risky because in the end, God is going to do what is right. There's a story in, in the Old Testament, um, in 2 Samuel chapter 10, David is, is king. And David um, decides that he wants to send some messengers to the Ammonites because uh, at one point uh, there had been some friendship between um, him and the Ammonite king, the previous king. He sends some messengers, but the Ammonites, uh, they, they don't care. They decide to shave the beards of the messengers, which, is a, which was back then a very shameful thing. And so um, essentially they're sparking war between themselves and the Israelites. And so uh, David sends out Joab, who is the, the general of his armies, um, and, and says to him, well, uh, go and attack the Ammonites. And the Ammonites realize, oh, we're hooped. So they, um, they get some help from the, the uh, Arameans. And so they, they, they've got now two armies, the Ammonites and the Arameans are coming against Israel. And Joab, uh, Joab realizes they're a bit um, outgunned here. And so he says, okay, um, Abishai, which was his brother, you go and attack this area and I'll go and attack this area. And then he makes this statement to his brother. He says, be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. So Joab is looking at these armies and saying, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen here. I really have no idea, but I do know this. I do know this. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. And if we know that with, with, with all certainty that God will, will always do what is good in his sight, then, then risks aren't really that risky sometimes, right? Because God will always do what is good. He will always work things out in his providence and his sovereignty for the good of his people. Let me, let me give you another story, Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Ne Nehemiah um, is the cupbearer to the king. And, and this king, this particular king, uh, has said not long ago, a, a few years before Nehemiah's story kicks up, he has made this decision that the, the walls of Jerusalem are not going to be rebuilt. It won't happen because they were a rebellious city. They were against us. It's not going to happen. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah comes before the king and asks him if he can go and build the walls of Jerusalem. He, he's asking him for the very thing that the king said is not going to happen years prior. But what happens? The king says, yeah, Sure. Here, actually, I'm going to send you with some letters so that people aren't going to attack you. I'm going to send you with a bit of a caravan. Um, you can go and get all the materials you need. It actually works out far better for Nehemiah than he would have dreamed. It was risky, certainly. But God will always work things out for good. 
So I, I, don't, I don't say don't be afraid to take risks uh, to give you an excuse to do something foolish. Because what I want you to even see in Esther here is that as much as we need to be bold to take risks, we need to be wise in taking those risks too. Because notice how she, how she frames her request. If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases, if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition and, and spare my people. This is my request. Right, right. She's, she's being very careful, but, but she's saying to this king who has obviously had favor on her, spare me my life. Spare me my life. She, she puts her head on the chopping block. And then when the king asks, who did this? She could very well have said this. She could very well have said, well, Xerxes, you did. Right? Because whose, whose signet ring, whose stamp is on the edict that went out to all of Persia to say that the Jews are going to be destroyed? Well, King Xerxes, right? Um, she could very well have just said, you did. Well, that wouldn't have gone very well, uh, probably, right? So she's wise, and she says, this vile Haman. And certainly Haman was guilty too. In fact, Haman probably bore more of the guilt. But she, but she could have been filled with such frustration that she just said, you, you, king, you did this. Um, but she doesn't. She's wise in how she takes this risk. So don't be afraid to take risks. If we are confident that God sovereignly works his good plans out in our lives, then the risk of, of exposing yourself to somebody uh, in, in the sense of, of saying, I, I struggle with sin too, and, and saying, can you help me? Well, it's, it's not actually that risky, particularly for the things that God has called us to do. Right? If he calls us even to preach the gospel, and, and sometimes you might feel like, oh, maybe I, should, maybe I should share the gospel with this person. And you think, wow, but maybe I'm risking my friendship here. Maybe I shouldn't do that. It's too much of a risk. Well, sometimes it's worth taking that risk and, and entrusting the consequences to God. Don't be afraid to take risks sometimes. My last point is this. Um, we've, looked at, we've looked at Haman. In particular, we've looked at, at Esther and we've learned something from them. I want to learn something from the whole story. And, and the point I want to make is this. Every tragedy is wrapped up in a comedy. Now, again, you might think, well, Haman is a bad guy, right? right? He is the wicked one. But, but it's no less tragic that he was so twisted in his desire for fame that it cost him his life. Tragedies happen around us all the time, but tragedies in the lives of, of people who don't know Jesus and tragedies in the lives of people who do. They, they happen all the time, right? Uh, people across the globe are, are, are dying because of hunger. There are people who are, who are being killed in needless violence. There, there are people who in the midst of this pandemic have lost their jobs and maybe are on the verge of, of bankruptcy. There are people who, who have maybe lost loved ones. Tragedies happen around us all the time. All the time. They, they happen all throughout the, the Old Testament even. If you zoomed in on certain stories, you would say, this is a tragedy. What's going to happen, right? Noah and the flood. The whole, the whole of the people on the earth are, are covered and destroyed by a flood. And only Noah and his family survived. You, you zoom in on that and you think, well, that's a tragedy. That everybody had to die except Noah. You look at, at King Saul and, and how he starts out. Look, it looks so good, but then he crumbles and he, and he fails. And he becomes selfish and he dies. Well, it's a tragedy. But the truth of the matter is that every tragedy is wrapped up in a comedy. You, you've heard people say this, and, and it's actually a, a good saying. We know the end of the book. 
we know how this ends. We know how the story ends. It's not a tragedy. It's not like there's a sad ending at the end of all this. There is a comedy. It's a happy ending. Christ is going to be on the, king, on the throne. Christ, our king. And if we love him, if we know him, then, then this Christ who is king on the throne is the very same Christ who came and showed his love for us by dying on a cross. And if that Christ who died on a cross for our sins is the Christ who is on the throne at the end of all time, well, certainly we have a lot of hope. Surprising hope. In the face of all sorts of tragedies that happen around us, tragedies in our lives, tra tragedies in the lives of others, we need to know that it's all wrapped up in one great comedy. It's all wrapped up in one great story that will have a happy ending. His people will be with him for eternity to enjoy his presence and to worship him forever. So we can take heart in difficult days. We can take heart when, when difficult things happen in the lives of our friends, when difficult things happen across the globe. We can, we can take heart knowing that there is a happy ending. So take heart. Take heart knowing that every tragedy is wrapped up in a comedy. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful for how every text um, offers us an opportunity to come to you and to hear from you, to hear the way that you are calling us to live, the, to hear um, the comfort of your providence, to hear the encouragement of, of your power, that, that you are able to do all that you intend to do and that you are a good God to work all things out for our good and for your glory. So, Father, we pray that you would shape us by these truths, that you would shape us to, to follow after you, to oppose the sin in our lives, um, to take godly risks in, in, in honor of you, and, Lord, to, to hold fast to this sure and steady hope um, that you are the conqueror and the great King, Almighty God, forevermore. So we thank you, and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Joshua, for that encouraging word. Another way we worship is by giving back a portion to what God has so richly given us. Just like how you grads received all that money from the people, maybe it's time to give that back. <laughs> we are so grateful for everyone who's continued to give during this season, especially those who have given, who are not a part of our regular church family, but joined us online. If you are a part of our church family, we encourage you to keep on giving. If you're not a part of our church family, do not feel the pressure to give. There are several ways to give. You can text give to the number on the screen. You can head over to our website, northview.org, and find the button give. Or if you do not trust the internet, you can mail in a check to our Downs Road campus or come in in person and deliver it during office hours. Now we're going to continue in worship as Nate and Stephanie lead us in another song. Jesus Christ. 
blessing from God's Word. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thanks Have a great weekend. Have Thanks a great for joining weekend. us. Bye. Bye. <laughs>